Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Today, God speaks to us from Galatians 2, 11, 21. Hoy, Dios nos habla de Galatas 2, 11 al 21. Pero cuando Pedro vino a Antioquía, le resistí cara a cara, porque era de condenar. Pues antes que viniesen algunos de parte de Jacobo, comía con los gentiles. Pero después que vinieron, se retraía y se apartaba, porque tenía miedo de los de la circuncisión. Y en su simulación participaban también los otros judíos, de tal manera que aún Bernabé fue también arrastrado por la hipocresía de ellos. Pero cuando vi que no andaban rectamente, conforme a la verdad del Evangelio, dije a Pedro delante de todos, Si tú, siendo judío, vives como los gentiles y no como judío, ¿por qué obligas a los gentiles a judaizar? Nosotros, judíos de nacimiento y no pecadores de entre los gentiles, sabiendo que el hombre no es justificado por las obras de la ley, sino por la fe de Jesucristo, nosotros también hemos creído en Jesucristo, para ser justificados por la fe de Cristo y no por las obras de la ley, por cuanto por las obras de la ley nadie será justificado. Y si buscando ser justificados en Cristo, también nosotros somos hallados pecadores, ¿es por eso Cristo ministro de pecado? En ninguna manera. Porque si las cosas que destruí las mismas vuelvo a edificar, transgresor me hago, porque yo por la ley soy muerto para la ley, a fin de vivir para Dios. Con Cristo estoy justamente crucificado, y ya no vivo yo, mas vive Cristo en mí. Y lo que ahora vivo en la carne, lo vivo en la fe del Hijo de Dios, el cual me amó y se entregó a sí mismo por mí. No desecho la gracia de Dios, pues si por la ley fuese la justicia, entonces por demás murió Cristo. This is the word of the Lord. Gracias a Dios. Mahatma Gandhi famously said, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Elsewhere, he is quoted as saying that if it were not for Christians, he might actually be a Christian. Now, this is quite the rebuke against Christians, isn't it? That Christians claim, I mean, think about the kinds of things that Christians claim. Christians claim to be a people who have been brought from death to life, born again, empowered by the Holy Spirit to be a people of the resurrection in this world, proclaiming good news to the lost and life to the dead. But outside those uh, of the faith, for many, that message is just meh. Because when they look at Christians, they don't see those whose lives reflect such dramatic claims. Now today we consider, uh, we continue rather, our series called The Resurrection. Uh, it's been a series where we've been focusing in on Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says that if the resurrection did not happen, then everything Christians believe is useless, it's all futile. But if the resurrection did happen, then we have to take seriously the claims of Christ and as a result, process through the resurrection some of life's most pressing issues all of which is impacted and informed by the resurrection of Jesus. And today, we consider one of the greatest apologetic arguments against the Christian faith. And what is that? 
Well, contemporary debates around the validity of the Christian faith are not actually found in uh, most of the time in the philosophical or the moral or the theological debates of the day. Rather, one of the greatest apologetics against the claims of Christianity is simply the life of the Christian. What does the resurrection have to say to us when we see Christians that are so unchristlike? What does the resurrection have for us when we ourselves are so unlike the Christ that we serve and worship. Now, there's many examples from the Bible and throughout uh, the history of the church of people that, are, that don't act like Christ. However, one of the most interesting and insightful examples is actually considered here in our passage in Galatians 2. It's an interesting interaction and conflict between two of the most well-known apostles, church fathers, authors of Scripture, the Apostle Paul and Peter. So let's look at this passage uh, to try to understand several things to see what is an unchristian, unchristian, unchristlike Christian. How does one become an unchristlike Christian, and how do we then become a Christlike Christian? Okay? And then I want to close by just talking to a couple groups of people. Uh, but first, let's take a look at what is an unchristian, unchristlike Christian. Uh, the first thing we need to do is we need to understand what's happening in Galatians 2. There's a significant backstory here. Uh, so to begin, we, we need to remember a couple of things. First, we need to remember that Christianity is the fulfillment of the promises that God made to Israel, the Jewish people. That all God promised to Israel is now fully accomplished in Jesus, now for the benefit of the whole world. However, in the period of uh, Galatians 2, in the, when the book of Galatians was written, there were still many that were grappling with that fact. Uh, they had, there were these Jewish Christians who were still compelled to follow a lot of the old ceremonial laws of Judaism, specifically laws related to circumcision and dietary laws. And some at the time asserted that in order for one to be a true Christian, they needed to be circumcised and they needed to adhere to the dietary laws. These, it's important to say, were Christians who were known as the circumcision party, which is one weird party, uh, the circumcision party or the Judaizers. It's important to note that they were Christians in the sense that these people believed that Christ was the Messiah. They believed that he died and rose again. They believed that he was God incarnate, yet they also believed that faith in Christ was not sufficient alone. Rather, for them, faith plus adherence to the law, that equaled salvation. But for the apostles, this was flat out wrong. For them, faith in Christ alone was salvation. And it's also important to know that they would say, well, after salvation, one should then be compelled to obedience, but obedience was not the prerequisite to salvation, especially obedience to a law that Christ had already fulfilled. And so with that backstory in mind, here comes the conflict. Peter, as a Jewish Christian, an apostle, the one who walked with Jesus, knew Jesus personally, who believed the gospel of faith in Christ alone, he ended up fearing the circumcision party and a lot of the things that they believed. And when he was pressed, he ended up taking their side. And he separated himself from the Gentiles and refused to eat with the Gentiles because the Gentiles were not circumcised and did not follow the dietary, customary dietary purity laws. 
He knew the truths of the gospel, but he feared man more than God. And as a result, according to verse 13, he led other Jewish Christians astray in his hypocrisy. And in 14, lived not in line with the truths of the gospel. Now, here's what I find to be so interesting about Peter's failure to get the gospel right. He of all people should have gotten this right. Why? Well, if you remember uh, back in our Acts series, we looked at a powerful experience that Peter had in Acts 10. Uh, If you remember the story, Peter had a vision. And in that vision, Peter became very hungry. And as he was hungry, from the heavens came down this large sheet full of animals that in Jewish dietary laws were considered unclean. But in the vision, God tells Peter to rise and eat. And God says, do not call unclean what I have made clean. Now, there's a couple reasons for that vision. The first was that God was making clear that Christ, uh, where, uh, now that Christ had come, there was freedom from the dietary laws. Okay? Bacon was now on the menu. Glory to God. And as a side note, I'll just say this. Uh, I don't know how many, how many of you have Easter hams? Anybody do the Easter ham? I'll tell you what. There is, in my opinion, there is no greater way to celebrate our liberty in Christ than to eat a pig. And so I would encourage you every Easter, eat that pig. But so God is telling Peter here, you no longer have to follow these dietary laws. Right? Do not call unclean what I have made clean. But the second thing that's happening there, the other reason why this uh, vision came to Peter It was not just about dietary laws, but if you know, something even greater was about to happen because Peter was then sent to a man named Cornelius, a Roman military official who would become the first Gentile convert to Christianity. And before the vision, vision, it's important to know that Peter would not have welcomed Cornelius as a full brother in the faith because for Peter, Cornelius was uncircumcised and unclean. Right? This is really the point of the vision because now God is saying to Peter, do not call unclean what I have made clean. So to be clear, Peter has this profound vision that eliminates these purity laws and sees the first Gentile conversion, one of many more to come. And then I'll just push this a little bit further to say that in Acts 11, it's important just to note, Peter then needs to defend his actions with Cornelius. There were those that were upset that he had been eating with this Gentile. And so he defends the gospel, uh, this gospel that is now going to the Gentiles against anybody who would question it. He becomes an apologist for the gospel now reaching far beyond just the Jewish people because God had removed these dietary laws and now they were, uh, the Gentiles were included. Okay, so this is the, that's, the, that's Peter's backstory. But here what we have is Peter is again confronted by the circumcision party, and this time he's in, in Antioch at the time. But here, he is no longer defending the Gentiles. But instead, now... He takes the side with those who want to exclude the Gentiles. And here's what strikes me about Peter's situation. It strikes me that we know what Peter believes. We know what he's argued previously. And yet, his actions are not, in Paul's words, in line with the gospel. And as you could imagine, you know, as I think about those Gentile Christians, this must have been incredibly disorienting for them. 
This group of people who are now being ignored and marginalized by their church leaders, treated like they are unclean or like they are outsiders. This, in many ways, was probably the most profound experience of what we today call church hurt, right? Hurt inflicted by the failures of church leadership who are unchristlike. So what is it then to be unchristlike? It's simply this. It's one who does not live in line with the gospel of grace. Peter is a perfect example here of what it means to be an unchristlike Christian because in essence, he is being a hypocrite acting out of line with the things that he says he believes. But why does one become unchristlike? And what does it mean exactly to live in line with the gospel? Well, let's consider that a little bit more. What does it mean to be unchristlike? I want to take a closer look at what Paul in this in Galatians 2 what Paul is accusing Peter of. It's important to know we we've seen Peter he's failing uh, to live up to the things that he believes and so Paul confronts him and this is what Paul says to him, all right, exactly in the, the translation that you, uh, you saw um, read there. Uh, the one translation says that they were, Peter was not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. Uh, there are other translations that say that uh, Peter was not walking in, uh, walking in line with the truths of the gospel. Uh, the KJV, the old KJV said, they walk not uprightly according to the truths of the gospel. And the reason why I draw those out is because those are actually better translations than the translation that we were using because uh, in the Greek, the word that's being uh, emphasized there is otho, orthopodosin. Ortho, of course, meaning straight, which is where we get uh, orthodontist from, uh, and produced in meaning step. And so the imagery that's there is that there is this path that the gospel produces, a straight path that one ought to walk, and that that path is marked by a particular step or a particular rhythm. And so let's keep that in mind, that the gospel produces this path that we ought to walk on, a straight path. But what exactly then is the gospel? Well, what is exactly does it mean to be in step with the, with the gospel, to walk on this straight path? Well, look at uh, verse 20. Paul gives us a sense of what it is that the gospel is. He says, in verse 20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. All right, let me break that down a little bit. First, Paul is arguing that nothing we do uh, produces true righteousness, that there is no salvation that can be gained through the law or through our conceptions of morality. But then look at verse 21. He says, if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. In other words, if you and I could be good enough to merit God's favor, then Christ's death was pointless. It had no meaning. It meant nothing. Christ died because our sin or our rejection of God was too pervasive. And so if we could somehow overcome sin on our own, we did not need Christ to die. And so Christ comes and he dies because God's goodness is so profound that he decided that he would not leave us in that state suffering under the weight of sin. And so the cross, in part, is God making clear just how bad our sin is. Of course, the question is, why, why is that good news? Why is it that we need to know such things? Why is it good news that Christ has come to die for us? Well, Paul gets at that a little bit in Philippians 2, one of my 
favorite verses, but Paul articulates for us why Jesus' coming is such good news to us. And he says this. Let me just read uh, a portion of Philippians 2 to you. He says, Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So here's why the cross is so important. That Jesus, being God, empties himself steps into our poverty. He becomes a servant to us and he dies a death on the cross for us. In humility, he serves us by giving his life. This is what it means to be like Christ. This is who Christ is, to be this self-giving love. So if there's any uh, succinct way for us to describe why Christians are often not Christ-like Christians, And if we were to consider what it means to be out of step with the gospel, right? Everything I've said boils down to this. To be an unlike Christian, or unchrist-like Christian, is to not embrace fully what it means to be a follower of Jesus, the one who was willing to lay down his life for the good of others. This is what it means to be Christ-like. To not do that is to be unchrist-like. I mean, one of the primary ways Christians are so unchristlike is when their tribe or their culture or their ambition or the good of themselves is more important to them than the good of others. Selfishness and self-gain is the root of most sin committed against others and against God. I mean, this was Paul's problem. For him, the opinions of others, his fear of them, his self-preservation, and even the preservation of his preferred culture was more important than faithfully holding to and living out the core doctrines of the faith. He proves the extent to which one can have the right doctrine, believe the right doctrine, have profound experience with, experiences with God, and yet, in action, not truly believe the work of Jesus, and not truly trust in this selfless love. Of course, since, since the Apostle Peter, there have also been many leaders over the course of church history, some of whom have been prominent, well-known, influential leaders who also have been out of step with the rhythms of the gospel in this way. They too have not been willing to give of themselves for the good of others. And by all accounts, they would have believed the gospel. They would have articulated the gospel well. And yet, they manipulate others. They use others. They marginalize others out of selfishness or selfish gain. There have been those who have embezzled funds. There are those who have abused their authority and power. Those, uh, as we've talked about last week, who have harbored sexist or racist or bigoted opinions in their hearts. In recent months, there have been heartbreaking stories of Christian leaders who abuse the vulnerable and others who have allowed that abuse to continue. You know, the the Church Two movement has been a necessary reckoning in many places in the church, shining light on the extent to which Christ has been dishonored and his people have been abused. And every time that kind of thing happens, these leaders, it's clear that they are out of step with the gospel that they proclaim. They care more about themselves than giving themselves for the good of others. 
But lest we only think that this is something that Peter had a problem with or other well-known Christian leaders have had problems with, let's be honest. If you're a Christian, how many times a day do your actions and words and thoughts run contrary to the selfless, Christ-like behavior of our Savior? How many times a day are our self-interests and self-motivations and arrogant assumptions of superiority shaping how we talk to others, how uh, it drives our politics or how, it, how we use our resources or how we treat our families or our neighbors? How many times a day do you and I walk out of step with the truths of the gospel? We step off that straight path that's been laid down by our, the selfless love of our Savior. I mean, maybe you know the doctrines, you believe them, but your actions don't reflect that belief. I mean, this is how we become unchristlike Christians. We forget what Christ has done for us. We forget what it means to be a Christian, which is to be welcomed by sacrificial, life-giving, self-giving love. That's what's made us a Christian. And how often do we fail to reflect it? I mean, if we're honest, we all do, and we all do regularly. We are all Peters in this sense, walking out of step with the gospel. So if that's true, what are we, defo- what are we supposed to do with it? Right? How do we uh, resist the impulse of loving ourselves more than we love others? How do we become Christ-like Christians? Let's consider that. I want you to catch something with me. Up until this point, we've said that the gospel is this self-giving love of Christ proven on the cross, right? So the cross is this focus. He gave his life for us. And so in that sense, the gospel is the cross, which is, is not wrong. But what we see in our passage is that Paul makes clear that we don't actually have the gospel if we only consider the cross, If we only consider this selfless love that Christ shows on the cross, we don't actually have the gospel yet in its fullest. Let me show you what I mean. Look at verse 20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Christ lives. What is that? Are you catching that? I mean, that's resurrection language, isn't it? That Christ has died, yes, but now he lives. And where does he live? He lives in me. And why does he live in me? Because I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Here's here's the point. Looking only at the cross will not make you Christ-like. It's resurrection life that makes you Christ-like. Romans 8 helps bring some clarity for us. Romans 8 speaks of uh, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is the same spirit that lives within the Christian. The spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, resides in the Christian, giving resurrection life. But in order for there to be resurrection life, there must first be death. There needs to be a crucifixion before resurrection life becomes apparent. Now, first and foremost, that's the death of Christ. But Paul says that we also need to be crucified. What does, that, what does that mean? What does it mean for us to be crucified that we then might experience resurrection life? Well, you know what that reminds me of? 
It reminds me of Jesus' words in Luke 9. And uh, Jesus is uh, talking about his coming death, and he's reflecting uh, on it. And he says in verse 23, he says this, hear me. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. And again, what is the cross? The cross is the means by which our sins are put to death. And so what you have Jesus saying here is that every day we must take up our cross, to take it up daily and to follow him. Now, when I, can, when I combine all of that with Paul's words in verse 20, what Jesus says in Luke, here's what we're left with. There is a daily death that every Christian must experience. There is a daily putting to death the selfish priorities and attitudes and idols that do not align with the grace we've been given in Jesus. Why? Because when we do, the result is that the resurrection life in us becomes more evident. Trusting the spirit of Christ to work the resurrection, of life, uh, resurrection life of Christ in you is what makes you more and more like Jesus. And unchrist-like Christians are not Christ-like, are unchrist-like simply because they're selfish hypocrites. It's because they've forgotten the fullness of the gospel, which includes this resurrection power that is in them. And the good news of Jesus and his selfless love on the cross and the power of his resurrection is that all of this together makes it possible for the Christian to daily put to death that which is dishonoring to God and experience that resurrection life within them. And so I encourage you with this. For those who desire to be Christ-like Christians, certainly look to the cross and remember what it took for Christ in his selfless love to accomplish a great work in you, to crush the sin that is within you. Look to the cross, but also remember the power of the resurrection is in you. And the power of the resurrection makes it possible for you to wake up every day and say, God, make plain to me that which I must put to death. Help me to take up my cross and follow Jesus. And when we do that, the Spirit of God makes plain to us that which needs to go. And as those things go, the resurrection life of Christ becomes all the more apparent in us. Now, with that in mind, there's two groups of people that I want to close talking to. As a, first, I want to talk to those who maybe you're not a Christian or you're struggling as a Christian. You know, those words of Gandhi really resonate with you. That if it were not for Christ, or Christians, maybe I'd be a Christian. But Christians are so unlike their Christ. As a Christian, I will confess that we fail regularly to reflect the love and compassion and justice and self-giving love of Jesus. The failure of Christians to reflect the character of our king and his kingdom is one of the greatest tragedies. And so I do ask that you forgive us. For Jesus is far more than what we often reflect but I will also say that Gandhi and others like him, they're wrong to base the validity of Christianity on the successes or the failures of Christians in reflecting Christ. The validity of Christianity rests in the fact that its central figure, Jesus, rose from the dead. And through that resurrection, there is proof and there is hope that all the brokenness of the world including the brokenness that continues to remain in his people, 
will be healed for those who trust in him. Because in the end, we will experience the fullness of resurrection life. Life that is no longer impacted by the effects of sin. See, for Christians, we know we will never be completely healed now. We know that we will never fully and completely reflect Christ perfectly. We still live in this world that's marred by sin, and we still combat the selfishness that's within us. Christianity is not primarily about living a perfectly moral life free from failures. It's not possible. Rather, to be a Christian is to be able to admit that from now until the day I die, I need to pick up my cross, be crucified daily, to crucify that which needs to die in me in order that Christ and his resurrection power might more and more increase in me as I more and more decrease. And so if you're not a Christian and you're struggling with the idea of following Christ because you look at Christ's followers and they don't seem to align with who you understand Christ to be, I encourage you to take your eyes off of Christians, to fix your eyes on Jesus, and trust that you can have confidence that you too will experience the fullness of his resurrection power as you trust in him, as you look to him as Savior. The second group of people, finally I want to talk to, are Christians. Christian, on the one hand, Gandhi and others like him, they're, they're wrong. To look to Christians for proof of Christianity. But on the other hand, Gandhi and others are right to believe that those who claim Christ should reflect Christ's selfless love. That is a proper expectation. And when we don't, and we all know that we don't, our first instinct should be immediate repentance and a desire to repair the consequences of our failure. If you're a Christian, when we fail, this ought to be what it means to deal with that failure, repentance and repair. I mean, like Peter, we are going to fail and we're going to act in ways that don't align with our stated beliefs. Those failures will certainly result, uh, are certainly the result of us not daily taking up our cross daily. But when we fail, what is our posture? I mean, I wonder, when we fail, is our posture one of defensiveness? Or is it a posture of apathy you know, when we see other Christians failing to reflect Christ, what's our posture toward them? Do we disassociate from them instead of confronting them with the gospel the way that Paul did Peter? Or do we fail uh, in seeing how together as a people, as a church, we reflect Christ together? And so together we're calling each other regularly to follow Christ, to stay on that straight path of the gospel and do we repent, both individually and corporately, when we fail to do so? You know, I often think about uh, King David. If you know the story of King David, King David uh, fell into grievous sin. His sin was violent, and it was evil, and it was unjust. And when he's confronted with his failure... He could have gone a couple of different ways. Uh, his failure was against uh, a woman who he exerted his power over. And when he was confronted, he could have gotten defensive. He could have gotten apathetic. He had every right to do so as king. But do you know what his response was 
when he was confronted with his sin. His response was Psalm 51. Do you know that psalm? Psalm 51 is this psalm of deep repentance. Let me just read for you a couple of verses because as we transition in a moment to the Lord's table, I want us to have in mind what repentance and repair looks like when we fail, when we do not live as those who reflect Christ. May this be our posture before the Lord and before those that we hurt and harm. David said, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He goes on to say, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Create in me a clean heart. Is that the kind of posture we have when we are not like Christ? I pray that it would be. And I pray that as we now transition to the table, a table where we meet with Jesus, our resurrected Savior, I pray that we would come as those who are repentant, desiring to uh, put to death, to see the Spirit of God put to death that which is unpleasing in us, that we might experience the fullness of resurrection life, both for ourselves, but also for the world in desperate need of that life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your kindness and your patience. We are a people who so regularly fail you. We so regularly um, live in a way that dishonors the one who has given his life for us. Forgive us. Lord, as we, in a moment, come to your table, Lord, I pray that your spirit would be making clear to us that which needs to die. And may we be able to come to the table with expectation that we will meet with our Savior, our resurrected Savior, the one who calls us to live like him, the one who calls us to obedience calls us to live selflessly. And may we be encouraged to know that as we do so, we are reminded that his resurrection power, the the same spirit that raised him from the dead is the same spirit who lives within us, would we be reminded that that power is within us, that we might reflect Christ more fully. Meet with us now. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.